everyone, this is Jeffrey Kerr. I'm back with another installment of the News of the Month series on the Kerr Reviews podcast. This is where I talk about a few different entertainment news stories that feel important and or interesting to me. Each of the stories you'll be hearing me talk about have been divided into four separate categories, and they all have nothing to do with politics. I thought I'd mention that because I'm not the kind of person who gets political, especially on a regular basis, mainly because it's just not my thing. In any case, the first set of news stories is about some upcoming awards ceremonies. Now, this year's Grammy Awards were originally scheduled to take place on January 31st. The Recording Academy was already planning to produce a limited ceremony where they would not have an in-person audience at all, but instead only allow presenters and performers to attend. However, the state of California has recently seen a surge in COVID-19 cases, so therefore the Grammys have now been postponed until March 14th. As a result, the Screen Actors Guild Awards telecast, which was previously set to take place on that date, will now be held on April 4th. It just goes to show how even as the vaccines are now being distributed, there are still high numbers of coronavirus cases happening in some parts of the world. For the state of California in particular, here's hoping cases over there start to decline even if it happens slowly. In other news, it has finally been revealed the five artists who are going to be inducted into the Kennedy Center Honors this year. Usually they are held in early December and air on CBS later in the month. However, the 2020 ceremony was postponed until this May due to the pandemic. The plans right now are that the medallion ceremony for the honorees with a limited audience will be hosted by the Kennedy Center during the week of May 17th through 22nd. The show will later air on CBS on June 6th. Among this year's honorees are multidisciplinary artist, choreographer, and actress Debbie Allen, singer, songwriter, and activist Joan Baez, country singer-songwriter Garth Brooks, violinist Midori, and actor Dick Van Dyke. Congratulations to you all, and I'm very much looking forward to watching the ceremony this year. This next set of news stories is about some TV projects that are in the works. Hard to believe that this July will mark the 10-year anniversary of the release of the final Harry Potter film, Deathly Hallows Parts 2, while this November will mark the 20-year anniversary of the release of the very first movie, Sorcerer's Stone, or Philosopher's Stone, depending on how that story is known as Where You Live. Since then, that franchise has continued to endure through a chain of themed areas at the Universal Parks and Resorts, an award-winning two-part stage play, The Cursed Child, and a series of spin-off films set in the wizarding world, Fantastic Beasts. Though most recently, it was revealed that a live-action Harry Potter TV series is apparently in early development at HBO Max. According to The Hollywood Reporter, executives at the Warner Media-backed streaming service have been in multiple conversations with potential writers exploring various ideas that would bring the multi-million dollar franchise to television, although this project in particular is still in its very early stages. However, millions of fans have been questioning about how involved author J.K. Rowling is going to be. For those who may or may not already know, she faced quite a bit of backlash last summer after revealing some controversial comments on transgender individuals, saying that they should be defined by their biological sex. Since then, fans of the Harry Potter saga have been having a hard time separating the art from the artist, which I can definitely understand. 
Though if you ask me, J.K. Rowling should have just kept her transgender comments to herself because if she did, we wouldn't even be having this discussion. And for the record, it's easy for me to separate the art from the artist because when I view the art, I'm only dealing with the artist's creative mind as opposed to their sinful or problematic mind. And plus, I think it's unfair to punish a certain product just because a problematic person was majorly involved when there were more people working on it who didn't do anything wrong. Obviously, it only took J.K. Rowling to write all seven books in the series, but when it comes to the movies, please keep in mind that it took more people than just her to get each of them made. That sentiment can also be applied to the theme park attractions and stage play, so I think it should also apply to this upcoming TV series. Though as I've said earlier, this project is only in early development right now, and likely has long ways to go before we see it on the air. Meanwhile, a new screen adaptation of F. Scott Fitzgerald's 1925 novel The Great Gatsby is in the works, though this time it will be done as a television miniseries. A&D Studios and ITV Studios America are teaming up with writer Michael Hurst for this project. No network is involved yet, but the producers are planning to shop the series around to premium cable and streaming outlets. Now, there's been five screen adaptations of The Great Gatsby so far. There was a silent film version from 1926 starring Warren Baxter, another film adaptation from 1949 starring Alan Ladd, the 1974 version starring Robert Redford, a TV movie adaptation from 2000 starring Toby Stevens, and the most recent film version from 2013 starring Leonardo DiCaprio. However, there still has yet to be one that majority of people felt did the original novel justice, so I think this attempt to do it as a miniseries might actually be a great idea. After all, not every novel needs to be adapted into a movie when they could just do a more unabridged interpretation on television. So I'd like to wish everyone involved with this project the best of luck, and here's hoping this will be the first screen adaptation of The Great Gatsby that does the novel justice. This next news story is about Matilda the Musical. Back in January of last year, it was announced that a feature film adaptation of the award-winning stage musical based on Raoul Dahl's 1988 novel of the same name is in the works. Sony Pictures and Netflix are partnering on the movie that will get a full theatrical and home video run exclusively in the UK and then stream on Netflix platforms elsewhere. Matthew Warchis, who has helmed multiple stage productions all over the world, will direct with production company Working Title Producing. Now, the overall track record for stage directors repeating their directorial duties on film adaptations of their musicals hasn't been great. While there has been some exceptions to the rule, such as George Abbott, who collaborated with Stanley Donnan on 1957's The Pajama Game and 1958's DM Yankees, Joshua Logan with 1958's South Pacific, Jerome Robbins, who collaborated with Robert Wise on 1961's West Side Story, Morton DaCosta with 1962's The Music Man, and Jim Sharman with 1975's The Rocky Horror Picture Show. There's also been Gene Sachs with 1974's Mame, Hal Prince with 1977's A Little Night Music, Susan Stroman with 2005's The Producers, and Philo Lloyd with 2008's Mamma Mia. 
Not to mention that Matthew Warchus has so far only helmed two feature films in his career, 1999's Simpatico, which has a 25% critical rating on Rotten Tomatoes, and 2014's Pride, which is at 91% on Rotten Tomatoes. The latter even received a Golden Globe nomination for Best Motion Picture Comedy Musical. Matilda will be his first movie musical, and those are always hard things to pull off. Hugh Jackman once said in an interview that they're like the Mount Everest of filmmaking. As for how this project will turn out, that remains to be seen. In any case, some official casting for the film was announced last month. Lashana Lynch, who has previously appeared on the big screen in Captain Marvel and will next be seen in the James Bond movie No Time to Die, is set to play Matilda's teacher, Miss Honey. Which is a very interesting choice for two reasons. The first one being that I'm not familiar with her at all. The second being that she's a black actress. I'm not sure if any women of color have taken on the role in a professional stage production yet, but I know that character has usually been played by a white performer since it was originally originated by Matthew Warchus's wife, Lauren Ward, in both Linden's West End and on Broadway. Not to mention that in the 1996 non-musical film adaptation of the novel that Danny DeVito directed, Miss Honey was played by white actress Ambeth Davids. So I think it's pretty cool that the filmmakers landed on someone who they felt was the best choice for the role regardless of race. Meanwhile, 11-year-old newcomer Alicia Weir has been cast as the title character of Matilda Wormwood. Obviously, I don't have much to say about that because she has more of a blank slate right now, though I did look her up on the internet and saw that she's a child performer from Dublin. There's even a YouTube video of her with a children's choir performing their own rendition of Cindy Lauper's True Colors, which you can find a link to in the episode notes. Lastly, Emma Thompson is set to play Matilda's villainous headmistress, Miss Trunchbull. Which is interesting, because that character in the stage musical has usually been played by a man in drag since it was originated by actor Bertie Carville in both London's West End and on Broadway. Although in the aforementioned non-musical film from 1996, Miss Trunchbull is played by actress Pam Ferris. Not to mention that Ray Fiennes was previously attached to play the role in this version, but it seems that he ended up backing out. With that being said, I did read that the creative team have managed to reconceive Miss Trunchbull to be played by a woman in the movie musical. Nonetheless, I think Emma Thompson is a great choice for this part. Not only can I see her do menacing very well, but she has also proven to have musical theater chops from having earned an Emmy nomination for her performance as Mrs. Lovett in PBS's broadcast of the New York Philharmonic's 2014 concert presentation of Stephen Sondheim and Hugh Wheeler's Sweeney Todd. As of now, the film is currently in pre-production and is set to begin filming this spring in London, and over 200 children are currently in rehearsals to play the students of the musical's fictional school, Crencham Hall. For our final subject, I'd like to take this moment to remember six industry veterans we've lost within this past month. Filmmaker Michael Apted died on January 8th at the age of 79, although no cause of death has been revealed. He was the director behind several movies, such as 1980's Coal Miner's Daughter, which won Sissy Spacek a Best Actress Oscar for her performance as country singer Loretta Lynn, 1988's Gorillas in the Mist, which earned Sigourney Weaver an Oscar nomination for Best Actress, 1994's Nell, which earned Jodie Foster an Oscar nod for Best Actress, 19. 
1999's The World Is Not Enough, which was the third of Pierce Brosnan's four outings as James Bond, and 2010's The Chronicles of Narnia, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Illusionist Siegfried Fischbacher died of pancreatic cancer on January 13th at the age of 81. He was best remembered for his long-running magic act with Roy Horn in Las Vegas titled Siegfried and Roy. And if I remember correctly, I believe I got to see them during one of two Vegas trips I went on with my family as a child. It was during that period of my life especially that I was really into magicians. Roy Horn had already died of COVID-19 last year, and now Siegfried is reunited with him in the Kingdom of Heaven. Dancer-turned-choreographer Bob Avian died of cardiac arrest on January 22nd at the age of 83. After having performed on Broadway in several musicals in the 1960s, such as West Side Story, Nowhere to Go But Up, Funny Girl, Café Crown, Henry Sweet Henry, and Coco, he started working as an associate to choreographer Michael Bennett on the original productions of Promises, Promises, Company, Follies, and Seesaw. The further collaborations Bob Avian did with Bennett included co-choreographing A Chorus Line and Ballroom, both of which won the Pear Tony Awards, as well as producing the original Broadway production of Dreamgirls. His other credits included providing musical staging to Miss Saigon, Sunset Boulevard, and Putting It Together. Legendary television personality Larry King died of COVID-19 on January 23rd at the age of 87. He was someone who started out his career as a radio interviewer in Miami, Florida from 1957 through the 1960s and later gained prominence in 1978 as the host of an all-night nationwide call-in radio program known as The Larry King Show. From 1985 through 2010, he hosted the nightly interview television program on CNN titled Larry King Live. From 2012 through 2020, he hosted Larry King Now, which aired on Hulu, Aura TV, and RT America. Legendary actress Cloris Leachman died of natural causes on January 26th at the age of 94. She was someone who had appeared on Broadway a dozen times from the late 1940s through 1959. She later won an Oscar in 1971 for her supporting role in The Last Picture Show. However, Cloris Leachman became more widely known as a comedian with her performances in three Mel Brooks movies. Frau Blucher in 1974's Young Frankenstein, Charlotte Diesel in 1977's High Anxiety, and Madame Defarge in 1981's History of the World Part 1. She also won eight Primetime Emmy Awards from 1973 through 2006, making her the most nominated and most awarded actress in Emmy history, along with Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Not to mention that she competed on the seventh season of Dancing with the Stars in 2008, finishing in seventh place. Legendary actress Cicely Tyson died on January 28th at the age of 96, although no cause of death has been revealed. This was someone who helped open doors for so many black actresses working in Hollywood today. She was Oscar-nominated for her performance in 1972's Sounder and received an Honorary Academy Award in 2019. 
She managed to win three Primetime Emmy Awards, two of which were 1974 for her performance as Jane Pittman in a CBS television movie titled The Autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman. I was lucky enough to have been in the audience at the 2013 Tony Awards where she earned a well-deserved standing ovation when she won for her performance in the most recent Broadway production of The Trip to Bountiful. My condolences definitely go out to all of their families. So that just about does it for the news of this month. I will be back on March 1st to discuss any bits of entertainment news stories that I found interesting and or important from February. If you love this show, please leave us a review. Go to ratethispodcast.com slash podcast and follow the simple instructions. Feel free to subscribe to wherever you get this podcast. If you'd like to find more content from me, please visit my website, which is www.carereviews.net. You can also find it on Twitter at CareReviews and me at Jeffrey Care. Thanks for listening, and I will see you all later.